0: <clears throat> nobody, nobody, nobody. Nobody Nobody read short stories. Hi everybody. I'm Megan. And I'm Jeremy. And you're you. And you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories. So the story today is going to run around 50 minutes. And we have the amazing John Zelazny reading his own story, called How Admiral Badgett Defeated the Soviet Navy.
1: Back in high school in the mid 80s, Badgett had a Star Trek phaser. This wasn't some cheap plastic toy, it was carved from wood, painted black, with a snub-nosed silver muzzle glued on the front. He liked to brandish it in pictures, you can see it in any number of yearbook photos, and he'd whip it out at unexpected moments. At a Model UN meet, someone asked him why the US was limiting their support of the Contras to simple weaponry. Simple weaponry? You call this simple weaponry? At another UN meet, another kid taunted him. Do you consider ketchup a vegetable? Delegate, I consider you a vegetable. His hero, Teddy Roosevelt, may have spoken softly and carried a big stick, but Drew Badgett thundered at the world and carried a phaser. I knew he'd made it as a Pentagon analyst when I mentioned a special screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Andrew immediately said that he would fly out for it. The director and some of the cast were going to be there, and Andrew had already met them at various Trekathons. but I never saw a man so happy as that night at the Hollywood Egyptian cinema. I took him to Miyagi for sushi beforehand. They had an all-you-can-eat Wednesday special, but After three hours of badget, that was probably the end of that deal. I'd watched him go from husky to burly to chunky in high school. Now he was simply monstrous. As we dined on the patio overlooking the fabulous Sunset Strip, a hipster chick at the table beside us sparked up a joint. Andrew couldn't get over it. For years, he cited that girl, that restaurant as the apothesis of California decadence. He wasn't upset. He thought it was hilarious. So, on dc In our town, roughly 85% of every graduating class went on to college, but Drew didn't sit around the library like everybody else, debating the pros and cons of various schools. He knew exactly where he wanted to go. The University of Virginia, his chosen stepping stone to a future in government or military affairs. And when he finally got his acceptance letter, It was as though his entire life and ethos had been vindicated. UVA 89, he proudly scrawled big in my yearbook. He was a year ahead of me, so he went away in the fall of 85, and I went back to Penfield High. A month or so later, I got my first letter from him. Freshman stuff, you know, courses, instructors, beer blasts, and he also included his new phone number, which was the same area code as I I was in which in the pre-cell phone days meant that he was still close to home, and definitely not in Virginia. Curiously, I dialed it, and he answered, and when I pressed him as to whereabouts, he admitted that he was in fact currently enrolled at the Community College of the Finger Lakes. I was stunned. What, What happened to UVA? Did he get bounced? Was it some kind of money thing? No, he admitted he'd never been accepted there in the first place which meant he'd been lying about it for almost a year. The depth of his gall was astounding. And yet, perfectly unbelievable. I mean, this was a guy who made up all kinds of shit and lived in a fucking TV fantasy land. Space, the final frontier. You know, come to think of it, had I ever laid eyes on that acceptance letter? Now Drew confessed that after bragging about UVA so much, he hadn't been able to admit to his classmates that it wasn't so. I said lying at school was one thing, but... Why in the world did he lie to me? We didn't have any real response. And I, I didn't say, I'm done with you, but I think we both hung up that night knowing it was the last time we'd speak. We'd been good friends for two years. We'd met on Agatha Christie's classic play, The Mousetrap. I played the detective, and Drew was Mr. Peravicini, the eccentric foreigner. At 16, he wasn't fat yet. He was just big and broad, with the excess weight sort of all over his frame, like a punchy middle-aged man. He had thick, bushy hair, a beard, and he sweated a lot. It was like doing a high school play with somebody's bachelor uncle sitting in. Probably the TV show M.A.S.H. sparked our friendship. Drew dropped cracks from the show left and right, and Hawkeye Pierce was my idol, too. I knew every episode, I knew the scene he was quoting, and I could chime in with the responding quip. We could do M.A.S.H. at the drop of a hat, volleying setups and payoffs like a secret language, our way to laugh and comment on any given situation. M.A.S.H. riffing probably led to Batman riffing, the 60s TV show, of course. Drew loved, loved, loved Adam West. He could quote actual lines or offer his own pronouncement in perfect imitation, and there I was, a year younger, short, dark-haired and earnest, the Burt Ward stand-in of his dreams. We'd get in his car and Drew would say, always buckle up for safety, old chum, and I'd say, holy traffic fatalities Batman, I forgot! Drew worshiped a pantheon of what we now call toxic masculinity. Dirty Harry, John Belushi, Patton, James Bond, John F. Kennedy, Raoul Duke, Charles Bronson, any hard ass with a wicked sense of humor who wasn't averse to slapping around wimps or punks. I was the same way. Penfield was a middle-class Republican town and we came of age at the dawn of Reagan. We went to see Red Dawn, the guns and ammo fantasy about high schoolers beating back the communist words and we didn't find it shameless, paranoid, exploitative or cartoonish in the least. Like Death Wish, it was just a damn good film. But of all the tough guys Drew revered, his indisputable supreme being was Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. Every conversation with Badgett was riddled with Kirk or Shatner references. He would use their names interchangeably as if the character and the actor who played him were one and the same. Once I began my Hollywood career, his standard greeting to me became, so you met Shatner yet? No, you're nothing. I stopped by to see him in D.C. on my Y2K USA road trip, and I met his wife, Amy. They'd gotten married a year or so before, but I hadn't been invited. We only spoke once or twice a year, so I didn't presume I'd make the guest list, but it was still odd that he only casually mentioned his nuptials to me long after the fact, like it was a new dog he'd gotten or something. Like many D.C. staffers, they shared a condo in Fairfax County. He was at the Pentagon, she was a lab tech for the NIH and they were both obese. Amy answered the door in a black Judas Priest t-shirt which was as unbadged as you could get. She showed me into his den and left us to catch up. A While later she came back in looking a little concerned. She called Harry and David about some fruit that he'd ordered and the rep needed to speak to him. Andrew took the extension and indeed there was some mix-up. Something about blueberries. They went back and forth over it with Andrew's temper steadily rising until he finally blew up. Just cancel the whole goddamn order! He wanted a full refund. He swore he'd never place another order with them. He was 280 pounds of fury as he hung up. His face beat red. I glanced at his wife, still watching from the door, and she looked ashen. And that surprised me. I mean, they were husband and wife and she didn't get that end of his emotional spectrum. He was still sitting there, panting and seething. It was as if nobody dared to breathe, so I picked up the phone myself and I I did my best impression. Lady, I am sick of being jerked around here. I want to talk to Harry. Yeah? Well, you can tell him to go fuck himself. You heard me. Fuck Harry and fuck David. Mrs. Badgett was gaping in disbelief. It took Andrew a few seconds to process all this, but when he did, the storm broke. He smiled. He guffawed. I kept ranting on, and he started to laugh, deep, rolling, room-shaking belly laughs. I glanced at his wife again, and I sort of, see, this is how you deal with his bullshit look. And only then did I realize how terrified she was. And that in a million years, she would never dare taunt the devil in his rage. Disconcerting. He took me into D.C. for some sightseeing that night, and as we idled at the Vietnam Memorial, he fretted that his marriage may have been a mistake. Amy was a good woman. They just didn't have much in common. It was one of those rare moments when his mask came off, but this was particularly sobering. I was in my 30s now. Most of my friends were married. I was barely seeing anyone. and Badgett is thinking about a divorce? They stuck it out another seven years. Many years later, he married for a second time to a woman he'd met through work. Again, I was only informed long after the fact. Captain's Log, Stardate 021684. We had so much fun doing the mousetrap together, we signed up to take the director's half-year theater principles course together. And for one assignment, Drew and I had to perform a long scene from The Odd Couple, and the first time I went to his house was to rehearse it. The Badgett family abode was a typical front entrance colonial, white with red trim, and a track that looked like every other suburban tract in upstate New York. I met his dad, Khalid, a quiet engineer for Xerox who'd emigrated from Iraq in the late 50s and spoke in a thick accent. And his American-born mom, Clover, a warm grandmotherly lady who was active in local theater. His older brother had moved out, so Drew had the run of the house with his beloved colleague, Danny. As I gave his dog an obliging pat, Drew proudly noted, Danny's a Catholic, you know, like John F. Kennedy. We went up to his room where he flung open the door to reveal the greatest teenage shrine to Star Trek ever assembled. Posters blanketed the walls, 12-inch figures, playsets, and starship models filled every available flat surface or dangled at odd angles from the ceiling, but the showstopper was yet to come. From under his bed, he pulled out his pride and joy a shoebox full of hand-labeled audio cassette tapes. It wasn't music. It was episodes of the original series that he'd recorded off of the TV. But even that wasn't the full picture. Taking the box, he led me back down to a family room with a round wooden table and four tan Naugahyte chairs. Drew pulled one of these chairs out to the middle of the room. He settled into it in a Kirk-like repose and he told me to put a tape in the boombox on the windowsill. "'Which one?' "Mm, "'Surprise me!' he dared. "'I shrugged, loaded one, and hit play. "'Whatever episode it was started. "'But when it came to Captain Kirk's first line, "'the tape cut out, and Drew delivered the line himself. "'The tape resumed at Spock's reply. "'Uhuru had a line, Scotty had a line, "'and then the sound cut out again, "'and Drew again filled in with the precise Kirk dialogue. "'Dumbfounded, I surveyed his cache.' What he had done seemed impossible, yet as he proceeded to demonstrate via a series of tape switches, he had, in fact, audio recorded all 78 original Star Trek episodes, and then painstakingly went through each tape, erasing every Kirk line, just so he could sit in that chair and play the part himself, perfectly Shatner-inflected, perfectly timed into the scene. And thus, I began to grasp the true meaning of fandom and pause acting, Kirk out. In the 90s and the aughts, Andrew called once a year or so, usually after 11 his time and usually under the glow of a cigar and a good scotch. We'd trade life and career updates and then he he quickly cut to the matter at hand, yet another stroll down high school memory lane. This from a guy who hated high school. He called it the lowest point in his existence, and he bore a passel of regrets for the things he said and done. And yet, with me, he loved to rehash the good times, the jokes, the girls, the shows, the awkward situations. We'd laugh for an hour, and then, before signing off, he usually mentioned a coming trip to San Diego, and maybe he'd drive up to LA. That rarely came to pass, but a few times it did. One afternoon, he called and he said he'd made reservations at Morton's in Beverly Hills. I'd never been to the famed steakhouse. It was a place you read about in Variety, like Spago or Chasins, you know, places for the industry heavyweights. I took it to mean that Andrew had a navy expense account, but a hot spot like that seemed a little undue burden for the taxpayers. I also worried about his behavior. I'd been at Orso's once with a different friend and his visiting parents, and after a few drinks, my. Friend's stepdad noticed Planet of the Apes' Roddy McDowell at the next table. He started making monkey noises. You know, what if Badgett spotted Halle Berry or Jodie Foster? Uh, How would he react to the inevitable parade of L.A. wealth and glamour? He'd go home to D.C., but this was my town, my business. If he dragged me into some ruckus in a place like that, it, it could get back to the producers who knew and liked and hired me. Strangely, he didn't seem the least bit culture shocked as we parked on La Cienega and walked toward the main entrance facing the Beverly Center. If anything, Drew was swaggering. 6 p.m. must have been the crack of dawn at Morton's because we walked into a pristinely appointed but deserted reception area. I looked around a bit lost, but Andrew was grinning and rubbing his palms in anticipation. Two men in suits appeared to greet us. Uh, No, not us, him. Mr. Badgett, welcome to Los Angeles. It's a pleasure to serve you, sir. And the big man lit up in delight. I was a little confused. I was the one who looked Hollywood. Yeah, young Hollywood, but still. In his khakis and maroon golf shirt, Andrew looked like every Midwesterner killing time at LAX. The maitre d' ushered us through the empty main room to an empty private room, where waiters appeared, and the kowtowing continued. It was like the staff had been hypnotized and told that Bruce Willis was coming. I ordered a Dos and Andrew asked to see the wine list, which opened the door to a long chat with the sommelier and the whole merry routine of selecting and sniffing, tasting, debating, ordering. I chose the smallest steak on the menu. Andrew asked to see their best four-pound lobster, and and they proudly brought it out. On a leash. Badgett inspected it closely, murmuring his approval, and thankfully they took it away and killed it someplace else. They never even brought us a check that night. As Andrew finished his dessert, his after-dinner drink, and his cigar, the Major d' returned to make sure everything had met his satisfaction. And my host assured him we'd had a wonderful evening. Yeah, as' my old buddy Johnny Z, uh, saved my life in Desert Storm, and uh, he's a big writer out here now. Well, the man was duly impressed as he showed us to the main entrance. Andrew was toting four sacked to-go boxes, lobster, a baked potato the size of a shoe, broccoli and cheese sauce, a slab of cake. Okay, Commander, I asked him as we got back in the car. How did you set all that up? He was happy to explain. For the past year or so, he had been hosting monthly dinners at Morton's in DC. His guests were all Pentagon brass, one or two star admirals, ship captains, aviators, men who didn't necessarily work together but Andrew thought would hit it off. He would make all the arrangements, the private back room, where a real man could unwind with drinks, steaks, and cigars. And I could just picture him sitting amongst them, schmoozing his chosen warrior elites the way the Morton staff had just schmoozed him, the ultimate Navy fanboy. Who picked up the tab for all those testosterone blowouts? Something tells me we all did. In high school, Drew drove a 68 Dodge Polara. It was the biggest land vehicle I'd ever seen, a rolling steel barge he called the Great Blue Shark. and When I asked why, he lent me a dog-eared copy of Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which finally explained who this Raoul Duke was, a 'er ne'er-do-well writer who threatened to rip people's lungs out and drove a convertible called the Great Red Shark. My teenage mind was instantly blown. Now, Duke was also a drug fiend, and Neither of us had any interest in that, but Drew did teach me how to smoke. That was for Our Town, which we did his senior year. He played Mr. Webb, the newspaper editor, and I was the grand narrator called stage manager who, according to the script, smokes a pipe. It seemed a key attribute of the character to me, so the director approved and my appearance a little less so. Drew not only approved, he supervised the whole process. Drove me to his favorite tobacconist, helped me to pick out a pipe and a nice cherry-rum blend of tobacco, and then he came back to my house to conduct my first smoking lesson at the kitchen table with my parents looking on. My mom seemed nervous. Then again, everything about Drew made her nervous. He just didn't seem like a boy, she remembered. I never inhaled, but with practice I did learn how to say my lines and puff away like an old pro. Three days before the curtain went up, the director nixed me smoking on stage something about fire regulations. Drew came over one last time and we smoked up what was left in that pouch. He did have other friends, some pals he ran around with and a few dozen other people he talked to at school, but that still left hundreds of kids who found him repulsive and wanted nothing to do with him, except at certain key events, namely House parties that lacked adult supervision. Our model UN buddy San Kapoor's parents, for example, had apparently moved back to Pakistan for a year, leaving Sand and his sister with only an Audi and a four-bedroom house. When word went out that a fest at such a place was imminent, Drew became a high-value contact, with kids slipping him shopping lists and cash. Pre-Shindig, he would then hit every liquor store for miles around, loading up the great blue shark's epic cargo hold with kegs, crates, boxes, and bottles. Given his looks, half the clerks didn't even bother checking his fake ID. Now around nine, he'd roll up to the party, and his happily buzzed classmates would troop out for fresh supplies. Watching these handoffs, you'd have thought Drew Badgett the king party animal of the class of 85. Even his little drama club sidekick would get invited in, where the lights were dim, the scorpions were blasting, a 100 pack kids yelled in each other's ears until the cops showed up. Whatever happened to house party guru, San Kapoor? He moved to LA and became a physician. In 2009, he was arrested for prescribing some of the drugs that killed his friend, Anna Nicole Smith. I don't know how other Star Trek fans felt when the Next Generation series premiered in 1987, but Drew hated it. It wasn't Navy enough. He sent me an essay he had published in some fanzine. Using extensive research, he argued that Jean-Luc Picard had no business replacing Captain Kirk because the French have historically produced such rotten battlefield commanders. The title of his article was Get That Bald Sissy Out Of My Chair. How did he actually break into the military? How does a fat nerd blowhard from nowhere colleges become a Pentagon civil service rockstar? He summed up the process for me as seven years as a Navy groupie. He started in Baltimore, working day jobs, getting articles published, and showing up at any public event that senior personnel might attend. His articles impressed me. He didn't talk avionics with me any more than I would have touted Jefferson Airplane to him, and I wondered how much science and technology he really understood. Seeing his densely detailed opinions in the pages of Navy proceedings, then, was a revelation. In any event, it was a chance encounter with a two-star admiral at a supermarket checkout line that finally launched his career. There was an opening for a research associate in the Division of Naval Air Warfare, and the officer put in a good word for Andrew. I more or less believed his good fortune, but A flicker of doubt persisted. You know, articles were one thing, but a Pentagon desk job sounded like another wish-fulfillment fantasy. A couple years later, I was hired to write a screenplay about the German plot to kill Hitler. Stauffenberg, the would-be assassin, was a Wehrmacht war planner, and my script hummed with backroom military intrigue, so I sent Andrew a copy for his review. He reported back that not only had he loved it, but so did all the captains and commanders he showed it to at work, which again sounded like a stretch, but I took the compliment. With the money I made on the deal, I took a month off to drive around the country. That was the trip that included my stop at the Badgett House. Andrew had offered to show me the sights, but I didn't expect that would include his office at the Pentagon during business hours. The following morning, I took the train in to D.C., rode up the escalator at Pentagon Station, and went through security. Andrew greeted me looking every inch the polished beltway insider, dress slacks, buttoned down with Navy cufflinks, suspenders, up elevators, down escalators, down corridors, and into the surprisingly elegant bullpen of Naval air warfare. The atmosphere was professorial and collegiate, offices and cubicles full of buzz cut Marine and Navy lifers and their dress casuals. And Andrew went down the row introducing me to every single one of them. Mike, uh, that's my friend John Zelazny, he's that Hollywood writer, wrote that script about Admiral Canaris and Stauffenberg. Everyone lit up at his approach. No one was too busy to welcome me, compliment my work if they'd read it, and marvel a bit at my career. For a project that nobody in Hollywood wanted, it was a rare moment for me to bask. And then they'd look to Andrew and talk a little shop. By the time he ushered me into the inner sanctum to meet the big kahuna, there was no further doubt that my eccentric, mercurial, bombastic old pal had parlayed his obsessions into a position far beyond anything he could have realistically imagined as a teenager. Or that the officers I just met, some of America's finest, not only respected his expertise, but genuinely enjoyed his humor and larger-than-life personality. Some years before, he'd asked me to call him Andrew instead of the Drew his parents still used, And I had done my best, but it wasn't until that day that the new name started coming to me naturally. A year later, every office I'd visited that day was consumed in the fires of 9-11. Andrew was thankfully driving to Newport News that morning, and his colleagues all evacuated safely. In 1984, Drama Club advisor Mr. Langrack organized a bus trip. To Canada's Stratford Festival for a production of As You Like It, and all us thespians eagerly signed on. It was a five-hour drive each way, but Badgett had a special project in mind for the two of us. We're gonna write a play! The following year, as a senior, he'd have the opportunity to direct one of the four grade-level one-act plays annually staged as a competition. Drew had it all planned out. He would take the senior class so he could star in the play as well as direct it and the script he envisioned would be his own spin on the Batman TV series. Drew would portray a dark knight who picked up women, kept a pint of Sark in his utility belt, smoked cigars, and swore like a sailor. The Joker would be the villain, but in this play, he'd steal a US Navy submarine and threaten Gotham City with a nuclear strike. I was game. I'd written book reports and the stuff you had to do for school, but it never occurred to me to put pen to paper just for fun. As the highway miles north flew by, the rest of the bus was chatting, reading, staring out the window. Drew and I spitballed lines trying to crack each other up. Who knew that writing was hanging out the same way we always did? He'd come up with a line, The Joker, that fiendish bastard, and we'd jot it down on the yellow pad and slowly assembled a cast list and a scene order. Now Shakespeare was all well and good, but I loved that knuckle-headed Batman idea. And that trip was as far as Drew ever took it. As a senior, he did not direct a one act play, and the thing lay dormant until I took film study as a senior and resuscitated it for my final project. The nuclear sub didn't make it in, but Batman still drank Cuddy Sark and called his nemesis that fiendish bastard. Years later, as a Hollywood screenwriter, I realized it never occurred to me to give Drew a story credit on my first film. I felt bad about that. I mean, geez. That bus ride only tripped the mental switch on this whole life and career i'm still fighting to make a lousy buck at thanks cape crusader he came up to l.a in the early aughts met my wife for the first time and we all had a lovely dinner at orso's i wasn't sure jen would dig his whole act but after all the stories she wasn't gonna miss her chance to break bread with the legend my fears were again unfounded andrew was at his most charming and gregarious he loved playing the big man for a new audience and didn't stint on the pop culture riffs, the salty faux machismo, or the curmudgeonly wisecracking. I assumed that evening would be our sole get-together, so I was surprised when he said, Yeah, I'd like to meet your boy Uli. I'd been working for the acclaimed German filmmaker Uli Adel for years, and Andrew had never expressed any previous interest. Um, yeah, we're in the cutting room this week. It's probably the best place to meet a director. Excellent! I don't fly out until tomorrow afternoon. I emailed Uli, said it probably wouldn't be a long visit. Our little suite was like a closet and my friend was huge. Nor do most civilians have the patience for film editing. Uli said fine. I gave Andrew the address and he said he'd see us bright and early. Later that night though, he called back. I was at my desk. Jen was grading papers on the couch behind me. I guess the phone was on speaker because we heard every word loud and clear. Change of plans here, old chum. I'm going to have to cancel for tomorrow. Yeah, no problem. Is everything okay? Yeah, I'm actually going to a live lesbian show out by the airport. Uh, on a Friday morning? <laughs> These are private shows, old chum. Fucking fantastic. Huh. Uh, Jen isn't there, is she? I mean, she can't hear me, right? No, I assured him. She clamped a hand over her mouth to keep from busting out. Yeah, I wouldn't want her to get the wrong idea about me. No, no. We exchanged farewells. Remember, till you meet Shatner, you're nothing. We hung up, and I looked at Jen. Now I've had the full-badget experience, she said. When I joined Uli the next morning, he asked if my friend was still coming. No, I said, suddenly a little irked at being stood up. Uli wasn't Spielberg, but he's considered a major artist in Europe. No, he said he'd rather see a live lesbian act. The artist nodded knowingly. Uh, you said he is very fat. So? That's what they do. Every action hero needs a nemesis. Batman has the Joker. Patton had Rommel. Starfleet has the Klingons. And at PHS, Drew Badgett had Jenny Doherty. Whatever incident or exchange had cemented this particular classmate in his world view was never clear but she was the eternal burning spear in his side, and the focal point of all his contempt. Anything he loathed, he linked to her with that bitch, usually modified by the even more heinous liberal, which I took to mean the girl was non-militaristic. Drew got an editorial published in the paper arguing that women were unqualified to fly naval aircraft. He cited the hypothetical pilot, Jenny, who flamed out in her F-14. I thought Jenny Doherty was way cool. We weren't close, but we had friends in common. If I saw her in the library, I always tried to sit down and gab with her. She was smart as hell, sharp dresser, had a beautiful face, wry sense of humor, killer curves, and a sophistication that always made me feel like Robin the Boy Wonder, hoping to impress Wonder Woman. You talked to Jenny Doherty? Drew sputtered, like I'd stuck a knife in his back. Yeah, it's her eyes, man. Sometimes when she's talking, I get totally lost in them. As a Pentagoner in the early aughts, though, Andrew's thoughts about women serving in harm's way evolved as female Army, Navy, and Air Force veterans of Operation Iraqi Freedom passed through his office, and he noticed the combat medals nestled amidst their service ribbons. It was probably the same for all his gung-ho, cigar-smoking cronies. No one has more respect for the trigger pullers than a backroom war planner. By 2016, I knew he'd become a fully formed human being when we discussed the coming election. Yeah, it's probably a sign of the apocalypse, but I guess I'm voting for Hillary. Yeah, she's as clueless as Belly Boy, but at least you don't have to worry about her totally fucking everything up. I'd never been so proud of him. I wanted to Google Jenny Doherty and let her know. One day back in high school, he came up to me after play practice and proudly handed me a sheet of notebook paper that contained a long handwritten list. Oh, what's this? Possible titles for my autobiography. See if anything strikes your fancy. They were all along the lines of victory. How Admiral Badgett defeated the Soviet Navy, where no man has gone before. And my favorite Nimitz, Kirk, Badgett, three great commanders. A few notches below Jenny Doherty on his high school enemies list was Pete Copeland. This was a little stickier, because Pete was one of my best friends. We were all in the Model UN club, which Pete was elected a president of over Drew their senior year. In grade school they'd been pals, but the teenage no-drama Pete had little use for any bluster or shenanigans. He was also Drew's physical opposite—blonde, Nordic, athletic, handsome. Their final break came when Pete's house was egged one night. He was pretty sure Drew did it, and later heard as much from others. Thereafter, he steered as clear of his burly bully as humanly possible. How can you spend so much time with Copeland? Oh, you know, Pete's great, you know, super well-read, big into military history and politics. We always have great conversations. Jesus, he thinks Lee could have won at Gettysburg. Friggin' moron. Yeah, but who cares what you think, Drew? In all our years, Drew never blew up at me until the day in early 2003 when I told him I was getting married in New Jersey that summer. Outstanding, boy wonder. Jersey, eh? Uh, Shouldn't be any trouble zipping in for the day. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, man. You're not invited. What? My in-laws are only giving me about 30 seats. I I had to start pruning. I can't believe this. You're not inviting me to your wedding? Well, you didn't invite me to yours. You didn't even tell me you were getting married. You were one of the first names I knew I could cut. Are you shitting me? After all those shows we did together? On and on he went. I just kept reminding him, you didn't invite me to yours. He turned quiet for a minute, but he was still seething. Finally, suspiciously, he asked, Are you inviting Copeland? Yeah, of course. What? You invited Copeland and you're not inviting me? I can't believe this. Copeland is coming? Are you fucking kidding me? I've always been closer to him. You know that. I cannot believe this. I didn't really argue or hang up. I just waited for the storm to pass. You didn't invite me to yours, I said for the about a ninth time. He sighed, long final exhale of defeat. Yeah, I guess you got a point there. I am sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: he muttered. And then suddenly he bounced back to his normal jocularity. "Ah, I should be in San Diego this fall. I'll uh, come up and meet the little lady. My first apartment in Hollywood was a few blocks between the Scientology Celebrity Center and a training center for the Sea Org, their elite uniformed leadership cadre. And the foot traffic was so fascinating, I later decided to write a spec screenplay about the young L. Ron Hubbard. Now, it was easy to imagine the megalomaniacal cult leader, but harder to get a handle on the scrappy young 40s pulp writer. You know, a relentless bullshitter who thought he was smarter than everybody else. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of sci-fi, and he was wildly obsessed with the U.S. Navy. Who would believe a character like that? The minute I started channeling Andrew, however, that script all but wrote itself. I duly fired off a copy to him when it was done, and thanked him for his inadvertent inspiration. He wasn't amused. A couple years later, having aspired to write a western, I found a historical nugget about the 19th century paleontologist O.C. Marsh. A self-educated expert from a small town in upstate New York, Marsh was a burly, bearded fellow who never married. His house had a full Indian teepee in it, and a trove of artifacts from his digs in the Sioux Badlands. Marsh would invite his grad students over, light up the peace pipe given to him by the great warrior chief, Red Cloud, and tell tales of his adventures. Again, the badget parallels were too obvious to ignore. Again, the scenes flowed like butter as I paced around my apartment, speaking in Andrew's voice to realize the character. He read that one too. He liked it a lot better. He never spoke much about his own work but for most of the aughts, he ran an adversary program. This was his brainchild. When U.S. relations with Pakistan began to sour, we canceled the sale of 25 F-16 fighter jets, and it was Andrew's idea that the Navy adopt the planes for use as enemy aircraft during war game exercises. His program was enormously successful, and it put Mr. Badgett in the position of having fleet commanders vying for the resources he oversaw. This translated into him visiting bases and ships the world over, getting guided tours, private dinners, drinks, cigars, and souvenir photos with the real-life starship captains he most revered. By now, I understood he wasn't some comic relief they let hang around at the Pentagon. Ordinary civil service contractors did not live like this. By the mid-teens, he descended to the even more improbable role of globetrotting Pentagon arms dealer. His crowning achievement, apparently a massive sale of Navy jamming aircraft to Australia. I don't know if the Aussies ever used them to defeat the Soviet Navy, but I'd like to think so. We didn't talk for a year after he confessed to me about lying about UVA. And then I got another letter in 1986, a five-page, single-spaced, handwritten apology. Drew detailed the insecurities that led him to lie. He profusely apologized and he hoped we could resume our friendship. The letter read in part, I became a teller of tall tales, a raging liar. I became John Glenn's campaign manager, the next Chuck Yeager, a magazine author, and someone Admirals confided in. I thought by saying such incredible things I would convince people I was someone worth keeping around. My senior year, people had me tagged for Harvard or Yale. Little did they know, I was 170 out a class of 300. My grades were so bad, every school I applied to rejected me. That was the first time he truly took off his mask, and it stands to this day as the greatest apology I've ever received. I've gotten others, and basically ignored them, because the penitents lacked Drew's sincerity genuine soul-searching and his naked regret. We didn't have any grand reunion, but thereafter we did keep in touch. We co-starred in a local play, and I created a comic role for him in my college senior thesis film, which he knocked out of the park. He was the best actor I ever worked with, and he didn't have the slightest interest in the craft as an adult. Even when I told him he could probably wow Hollywood as the next Fred Dalton Thompson. Ah, nobody wants to see me, he demurred. I'd assumed his college fabricating days were over, but when he sent a copy of a naval compendium he co-authored in the late 90s, he signed it to be by noting that his bio blurb on the end leaf was not correct, and that his real bio appeared on the last page. The back flap, the one most people would read, said that Mr. Badgett was a graduate of the University of Rochester. The inside page did not correct this mistake, and it didn't mention Finger Lakes Community College. It didn't mention any college at all. In 2016, he was kindly providing me with military advice on yet another project. We'd been trading phone messages for a week and I finally got him in his car one morning. He assured me he was fine to talk, he answered my questions, and then started laughing about the good old days. And all at once, he stopped. I heard him sort of choke and I asked if he was okay. He confessed that his mother had suffered a massive stroke the night before. Clover was still unconscious. Doctors had no idea when or if she'd recover. And Andrew was sitting in the hospital parking lot after filling out forms all night. Then he broke down completely. The only time in 30 years I'd heard him weep. His dad had died eight years before and his mom had been in and out of the hospital ever since. He and his brother spent so much time traveling to Rochester for her, they finally moved her to a condo outside DC. But his brother wasn't much help with insurance companies and hospital billing. That was all on Andrew, and his mother was burning through every insurance policy she'd ever had. Now she could live another ten years requiring full-time care. I don't know what to do, and I feel like every shitty thing that happened is my fault. I stayed on the line with him for another hour, gently tiding him through his despair. Inevitably, it was memory lane that slowly brought him back she always liked you old chum she said you were a good influence on me when he collected himself he thanked me for talking and said he'd keep me posted next morning he called again to report that she had died that same day we had another long heart to heart was easier now that his terrors of seeing her suffer were over
0: take my advice jay-z
1: get as much insurance as you possibly can he thanked me for our decades of friendship it was odd, bonding like that with someone I so rarely spoke to, but I'd had a cherished place in the house he grew up in, and I was a living link to our town. By whatever twist of fate, I was the person who called to pick his brain at the exact moment he needed someone to listen. Those two calls were the longest we ever spoke without the usual joshing, the sort of exchange we should have had after his apology letter thirty years before, while well, I thought, better late than never. In my waning movie days, I wrote a script about the early days of The Who, and ten years later I decided to turn it into a novel. A supporting character in that story was their manager's father, an obscure British composer named Constant Lambert. And as I dug deeper into his life at times, so many of the old familiar Badgett traits started jumping out at me again. The total knowledge and mastery of his field, the gleefully rampant ego, raucous sense of humor, and the extroverted, insatiable appetite for alcohol, tobacco, hobnobbing, and sex. Once again, I'd found a character I knew all too well. And unlike L. Ron Hubbard or O.C. Marsh, the more I learned about Constant Lambert, the more I wanted to write about him. He was just too vibrant, too funny, too flawed for a supporting role. This man needed his own novel. Given that he worked in ballet, it wasn't a world I could just jump right into, so I tried a few short stories. The first was narrated by his novelist friend, Anthony Powell, a quiet watcher who realizes his best work has always been inspired by his more boisterous companions. In late 2016, I finally broke ground on the constant Lambert novel and again, imagining Badgett as Lambert fueled the process. In one scene, the 34 year old composer describes how his tomb should commemorate his two greatest orchestral works. I'm thinking of putting a bench in, With a little wind-up Victrola hidden inside. Future generations can feed it a shilling, take their ease, and contemplate the brash achievement of my youth versus the deepening complexity of my middle period." You couldn't get more Badgett than that. Now whether to depict Lambert's actual death was a story question I had to solve. For all his brilliance and lust for life, Lambert suffered a few key setbacks and essentially drank himself to death. He was two days shy of his 46th birthday. I decided not to show it. It was a tragic end, all right, but finally too downbeat. It was too unworthy of such a larger-than-life character. I was deep into this novel in April 2017 when Jack Langrack, our former drama teacher, emailed me a link to Andrew Badgett's obituary. Andrew had just called me eight weeks before And been his usual jovial self. He hadn't mentioned being sick or or any other setbacks, but when I saw a liver and kidney failure listed as the cause of death, I knew he drank himself to death as well. He was a few months shy of his 50th birthday. I've lost closer friends, but they were in their 70s and 80s. Andrew is my first and so far only high school buddy to pass on and whether it was because I'd been channeling him into Constant Lambert for three years, his loss struck me unlike any other. Nor was there anyone to call to express my condolences. I'd never met his second wife. I didn't know any of his friends. My wife was genuinely fond of him, as she is of all the bright and unruly fourth-grade boys she's taught in her career, while his old enemy, Pete Copeland, at least agreed the world was a tad less colorful without him. I consider you one of my best friends, Andrew told me that last call. Did he know it was our last? It didn't strike me that way. He often repeated that sentiment when reliving our glory days, and he signed off that night with his usual, yeah, I should be in San Diego in a few months. As the memories began to compile, I reread my first constant Lambert short story, the one where the novelist Anthony Powell reflected on their friendship, and immediately I saw it with new eyes. It was a veiled portrait of Drew and myself. He was my Lambert more than I ever knew. We did seven or eight shows together throughout the 80s, but the dynamic between us, whether on stage or off, was always the same. I was his Prince Hal, and he was my Falstaff. In my story, Powell laments that the Lambert inspired character he used in his novels failed to truly capture his late friend. I feel just the opposite. The way Drew Badgett compartmentalized his life, there isn't another soul on earth who could have told you these particular anecdotes. There are many Badgett stories like them, but these are mine.
0: John, that was so well done. Thank you. So good. So uh, for everyone, uh, Megan, unfortunately, uh, is having some technical issues. She's in Mississippi visiting family right now. So John we're going to keep you here. We're not going to push you out. We're just going to go into who you are and then I'm going to ask you some questions. Sounds so good. awesome. Um John is a graduate of the Newhouse School of Syracuse University and the US Army Airborne School. He spent his early career in Hollywood, most notably a decade in creative support of acclaimed German director Uli Edel. His short stories have been published in The Binnacle, Literary Eclectic, Econoclash Review, Switchblade, Thuglite, Thuglit, sorry, and the upcoming Opossum. Uh, That's it. John, this one this one hit me, like hit me the same way that it hit me in Writers' Group, like the first time I heard it. Um, we we know each other from Writers' Group. Um, I, Andrew's such a complicated character. Like he's he kind of like when you when you do the reading. Like I visualize Jack Nicholson for some reason. Like every single time, I don't know why. Um, yeah. Yeah. He
1: was he was a he, he definitely cultivated a larger than life image. He loved to be the center of attention. He was a natural born, uh, you know, s- self promoter and and a lightning rod. I mean, you just you could not ignore him if he was around. Not everybody liked
0: him, but you're not <laughs> oh, I, I bet not everybody liked him. So, yeah, he,
1: he ruffled a few feathers in his day.
0: So uh, I know that you guys were out of touch for a bit. Like, how how did your relationship change? Um, like, once you guys were back in touch.
1: Well, we never lived in the same city again. He was in D.C. and I was in Hollywood, and it's interesting in that, you know, he was my one friend who stayed in the military, you know, I had, I I was in myself and I had some friends in it, but you know, his career was there and it's always useful to have a guy in the Pentagon. I wrote a lot of, I wrote a lot of military material. Yeah. I worked on different projects and he was always a guy who was happy to talk to me about stuff. You know, he was extremely knowledgeable about military history. So he was a very useful person for me to tap whenever I needed something. And at the same time, Washington people love Hollywood. They, th- they think it's great. So he had that kind of same thing, you know, he was proud that he could tell people at work that he knew a guy in Hollywood. And not that I, I was not some big writer the way he bragged, you know, but he liked that he liked that he could call up and uh, ask me something he called. One time he got to meet uh, a movie director, John Melius. And he called me and he said, Well, what should I talk about with the guy? And I was sort of able to brief him on these are the movies he knows. And these are what he's you know, talk to him about this, and he's gonna love you forever. And, you know, he followed my advice and those guys were friends for the rest of their lives. So, you know, it was a mutual, it was a mutual appreciation and a mutual relationship.
0: <clears throat> um, what What inspired you to write the story, John?
1: Uh, once he passed away, there's no reason, you know, you're not going to, re- he was a guy who was always reliving things. He would tell the same high school stories over and over again. So you kind of grow up your whole life now once he's gone all that is gone and all those stories are slowly going to fade away nobody else wants to sit around and talk about drew Batchet. and so i decided i have to get all this stuff on paper and if i wasn't a writer trying to get published i would have you know i'm trying to submit it to magazines and get it published but i would have done it anyway just to have it in a file so that i could pull it out and, and remember some of these things because there were just so many funny stories and, and moving stories and emotional things. And putting it all together, sitting and putting all that stuff together was really, you know, it forced me to think about him and what that what kind of person he was, what kind of relationship was. It was almost like therapy, not that I had to solve anything, but a lot of things started popping out at me about, you know, who he was and how he lived his life that I'd never had reason to think about before. So for instance, I never under, I never realized what a bad student he was. I mean, he wrote it in the letter, but he was so intelligent and so smart, it never occurred to me that I don't think the guy ever did an ounce of work, Mm -hmm. like actual work that you would have to do in high school. I think he just did his own thing all the time. You know, when did he have time to make all those tapes of Star Trek? When he should have been doing his homework. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And you know, and most people, most smart people can fake their way through high school. So his intelligence and his rebelliousness rebelliousness was of the sort that he couldn't even fake it. He couldn't even turn in work mm-hmm. to pass. You know, he must've just failed stuff left and right and didn't care. And yet somehow wanted to go on to work in defense. You know, he wanted to, that was his dream.
0: But and it's amazing way, that he made it happen. Like, and he, he made it happen. He, he broke, broke all happen. the rules. He broke all the rules and he did it his own way. And I think that's amazing. It's like, incredible. It's It's a, amazing. It's amazing.
1: All of us, you know, there were a number of my friends that we wanted to serve in the military, and so we applied for the scholarships. We went, we went into ROTC. I did it. Uh, Pete Copeland, who I mentioned to that he was an army officer, there were a number of us who went in the military. Mm. The, only, the guy who loved the military more than any of us, Drew, could never have passed anything in the military. He could have never gotten in the military, and yet he had this career. So it's a it's a crazy story. And I'm
0: getting back. like goosebumps while you're talking, like. <laughs> John, like you, you did such a magical job of uh, mm-hmm. depicting someone like I. Like you were talking about how your wife liked him. I like him. Like he, he's not good or bad, but yeah. he's just a really attractive human being. And one of the things I really love about him, to be honest, is that he is just who he is. You know, yeah. he doesn't try to BS anyone into being something else. Well, maybe he does. That's part of his personality. But he, he followed his own rules. You know, and it didn't matter if somebody liked him, and th- that's a re- really rare quality in people. Um, so I, I'm super happy that you, you wrote this story. Like I, I do think he's somebody that people should know. Yeah. You know,
1: well,
0: it's I'm amazing. Mr. It's girlfriend. amazing
1: that I can get people who've never heard of him kind of interested in him because I,
0: I felt him, <laughs> like I, I feel him, like I feel him in the piece. Like if you, if he were alive, and you had a lineup of guys. I think that <laughs> if he started talking, I think I would know who he is. You'd have no question. You would, no you would, question. You would no pick question. him out of a thousand. Yeah, I'd either pick uh-huh. Jack Nicholson or him, you know, like <laughs> like just that energy, just that like I am here, I am I'm a I'm a star that like is just gonna keep shining. Yeah. It's amazing. Do you think he had any regrets that he didn't do more acting or any no. of that? No. No, no,
1: not at all. He had he had no interest in acting and he was so good. And I make him sound like a, you know, like a boisterous over the top guy. But when he did something like Our Town, which is a play about boring people in the Midwest, he was perfect. You know, he perfectly could play Mr. Webb, the newspaper editor, without any kind of his usual thing. He was a very, very good actor. And he had no interest in doing anything with it, you know, once he
0: got older. John, we got a we got a comment. So I'm going to like read that really fast. Okay. Um, so Maureen says, "Great story. So interesting to view your life at different stages through the lens of a friend. Uh, we may all have someone like Drew in our lives. That's so true. We do. Uh, he made an impact, and you gave him the voice through this piece. He would have been proud of your work."
1: Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. Yeah. I, he would. He would hate me. He would kill me if he ever did <laughs> this. He, he would not wanted me of talking about some of this stuff. So, but I, I appreciate the comment and. uh
0: we we talked about this before, but I, I'm impressed that you wrote this story. Like, I would be terrified. Like, you usually write historical fiction, and I'm impressed with that, that you're writing real people. But this is a real, real person. This is somebody you knew. Do you want to kind of talk about, like, what you did with, with the process for writing this piece so that you felt comfortable?
1: Yeah, um, it was all really just my memories, and the only sort of trick... The whole key to it was that the minute I realized I didn't have to tell it in order, that I could pop mm. in and out of different points of life.
0: And I love that you do that.
1: And, at the, and then at point, point, it doesn't really matter how long it is. You hang around as long as you want to keep reading these stories. But once establishing that it was not a linear telling of his life. And, I, you know, there's about, there's lots of his life I don't know. There's so much of his life I was not involved in. You know, he kept me in a box. I was one of the compartments in his life. So I don't know too much about it. I'd never met his second wife. And when I was gonna sit down and write this, I needed some, just some basic information, like where he went to college. So I reached out to her and we, and I met her for the first time. And that really is the only person who would, you know, be sensitive to something about him. Uh, He has no children and his parents had passed away. So, you know, she approved of it. She liked, you know, she appreciated what I had done. And that was, that was the most important. The other thing is I reached out to one guy she his his widow pointed me to a friend of his and I spoke to that man at length as well so I had a little bit of perspective on the rest of his life but I didn't make that part of my piece it wasn't about what I learned about him after he was gone it was just about what I saw and experienced and um, the three of us all kind of surprised each other we all knew things about him that the others didn't Mm. So he was a very compartmentalized person and you know, that's probably the reason I was not invited to his weddings. You know, he probably did not want me mixing with the people from his real life. So, it's complicated.
0: I, I also, like, I know that you're writing it from your perspective, but I actually got the feeling that I knew how he felt about you. Like, I, I know that you guys were distant, but I think he, like, and I don't know the guy besides what you wrote, but it felt like you were a really important part of his life, you know? Yeah. Like, meant a lot i mean he wrote that letter to you actually that was one of my favorite parts is the that he wrote that letter to you like he just let go of the facade and he was just so honest
1: yes now he never forgot that letter at various (laughs) various times at various times he'd say to me uh i remember that letter i wrote you you still have that like yeah you think i could get that back no no you can't have it back (laughs) It's so, 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 so in the cellar at my parents' house. Why do you to, think
0: he said that?
1: I think he was embarrassed because that information was probably stuff he wanted private. He didn't know, you know, he didn't want me doing a podcast after he was gone talking about what a <laughs> shitty student he was. You know, I don't know if he thought that, but he knew that there was information in that letter that he didn't want getting out there. And I think that's why he asked it back. And I was, I always laughed him off. I'm like, no,
0: no, you're not getting it back. I
1: love that letter. You can't have it. <laughs>
0: Andrew, if you're listening, we love that uh, that John didn't give it back because now we know you. Um, there's another comment. Let's see. Uh, the question is from uh, Mark. Uh, what year did you do the airborne course at Fort, uh, Fort Benning?
1: I was uh, uh, July 18th, 1988. You never forget that. You never forget the date you got your airborne wings. So, yeah. Thirty-two years ago, my, and I did that oh, oh. cars knowing that I could brag about it for the rest of my life, as I'm still doing today. So it was a it was well worth the the pain, and uh, you know it was one of those schools where they're on you all the time. So there it was.
0: <clears throat> uh, my last question, and one that I haven't asked you yet, I I don't think is. Um, What do you think inspired him to write that apology letter to you do you have any theories because i've been wondering that like each time you have read this
1: uh he clearly wanted i mean he was very clear that he was extremely sorry that he didn't know you know he couldn't explain why he had lied about it he was clearly trapped in his own lies and he was very clear that he wanted to be my friend again he Mm -hmm. just nakedly said i want to be your friend again and um you know after he after he had revealed that he lied, I didn't talk to him anymore. I had nothing to do yeah. with him. And so once we were back in touch, we you know, we did another play together and uh, you know, we did my film and then there after that I moved to California and we kept in touch. So, you know, he was he was pretty clear about what, what he was doing and why. And he certainly did his best to get me to to uh, forgive him.
0: Well, John. I love this piece. I'm so happy that you you were here. Thank you for sharing. Um, thank you,
1: thank you for having me. It was wonderful to uh, to be able to do this and to bring him to life yet again. It's one thing to write it, but I love doing his voice and
0: playing. And your her voices, her. your voices are so good. I, so it's people, it's
1: really like he's back in the room for a couple of minutes here. So it's it's a lot of fun, and I really appreciate the I felt it.
0: And y'all, like if you this is your first experience with Nobody Reads, John is one of our regular actors, so you should like check out some of the other ones he does. He's really great with voices. Uh, Speaking of, John uh, also has a book. Do you want to show your
1: book? Um, My latest short story is called Radio Such, and you can find it here in Switchblade number 12. Uh, Switchblade is one of the great new pulp uh, anthology series. Uh, there are guys out there like LA's Scotch Rutherford who's doing his best to keep the hard-boiled tradition alive. It's my second time in Switchblade. I was also in this one, number seven. Oh, and you know this one is good because it's got a scantily clad girl on the cover. So if, thanks the for the my... description
0: for the people on the podcast who can't see this.
1: Oh, they are. Uh... So these are uh, uh, anthologies with stories in them. Uh, pieces of my uh, crime stories. And you can get them on Amazon for $8, or you can get a Kindle download for $3. So that's Switchblade number 12 and Switchblade number 7.
0: And we're going to put a link for you all below that watch the YouTube video so that you guys can get it there if you guys are watching the YouTube video. Um, yeah, John, anything else that you want to bring up, like anything else you're doing?
1: Uh, that's about it right now. Just uh, riding it out like everybody else. So.
0: All right. Well, thank you, John, for being on the show.
1: My
0: pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. All right, everyone, there's some pressure here because usually I have Megan to like uh, keep me in check. So I'm going to be doing all of the plugging right now by myself. Uh, y'all that are listening right now, don't tune out on me. Um, if you like this episode, please subscribe and like us. And if you liked all our episodes, ring our bell. We like our bell being rung. Um, And this isn't just a YouTube channel. So if you're finding us through YouTube, uh, we really wanna make it something that people are listening to on the go. So any place where you listen to music like uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Amazon, you can also find our podcasts there. We're also on social media. So if you have Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you can find us there as well. And then, Uh, This is so weird doing this without Megan. Megan, I miss you. So I'm hugging this like this is Megan right now. This is some of our merchandise. Um, It costs a little bit of money to do this show. And so the way we raise the money is by the merchandise. Anything else extra that we're going to get is going to go to charity. Um, Megan's not here, but she has a wonderful website. So if you visit meganamorrison.com, Uh, Anytime she has updates, she will let you know about them. I also have a website, jeremyraystories.com. And if you subscribe to me, you get a micro story uh, written by me every week. And I think I covered everything. Let me look at my producer and see if I'm going to get a thumbs up from him. I did. I got a thumbs up. The last thing I have to do is plug the next episode, which I'm really excited about. Uh, It's going to be a holiday special since we're going to have everything holiday come up. Um, It's called The Witch's Boy and the Weaver's Girl by Ellen Ireland. You definitely want to check it out. It's going to be so much fun. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. No one reads our stories anymore. Really don't know what they're written for Go write a short story And throw it out the door Cause no one reads short stories Funny, sad, or gory No one reads short stories anymore Yes, no one reads short stories